Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook, which came out in 2017. Given its timing, I think you'll all recall 2017, and among other things, the Charlottesville Unite the Right March and various other phenomena of that year and that moment, uh, and given its excellence and thoughtfulness and insight, became a bestseller and a sensation, and rightfully so. And as we start our conversation, I want to bring us back in time, because as that book was uh, circulating, Mark himself was circulating, and came to UC Davis, if I recall correctly, to mm -hmm. give a talk, was invited, it was an official event in the sense that it was in a university building, but was inv invited unofficially by campus community members who were really interested in having Mark talk um, and, and brought him in. He was good enough to come. Mark, do you have any recollection of that event you'd like to share with uh, our audience? I, sh I sure do. <laughs> I thought you might. <laughs> I sure do. That was, um, that was one of the most notable presentations I did on the tour back in 2017, notable largely because of the presence of some uh, uh, fashy uh, dudes in the back of the room, um, one of which seemed like he was had a knife on his belt or something. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, were, were either of you at the event? I was at the event. I was, too. Yeah. Yeah, so um, feel free to chime in with your recollections. <laughs> but, um, you know, at the beginning, um, I believe um, uh, there was an announcement made not to video, and I started my, my talk. And then in the back, those folks pulled out their phones or other devices to start filming. And then some intrepid members of the audience were holding up what was like um, a poster board or sheets or something to block sheets, their, yeah. their cameras. Do you remember? I remember it was there were some blankets and some sheets and lots of things. Some coats went up, I think, yeah. I recall. Yeah. Um, so uh, it was a strange experience giving the talk while in the back there was this sort of game of cat and mouse going on of trying to block their cameras. And I was really concerned that one of the, the fashy types would try to find some excuse, some excuse to start a fight. Mm -hmm. I, I'm almost shocked it didn't happen in retrospect, um, given their violent propensities. Um, but nevertheless, right, we got through the whole talk. Um, I was a bit distracted, but I, I said the things I usually said. And then my, my partner who was in the audience and was actually pregnant at the time gave me like a, a hand gesture like, take three question, questions, then we're getting the bleep out of here. <laughs> um, because I like to do Q&As. I like discussions, but like it was a very tense atmosphere. And so I took three. I think one of them was from some sort of a, a right-wing troll. Oh, yeah, I remember um, that, the first one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the two things I remember the two things I remember most of all were one, one of the fashy people had a like a, a baseball cap with a was it like a sequin American flag on it or something? I was just really like I was like bold choice, bold <laughs> choice. But I was also remember being incredibly impressed, thinking to myself, of course I never I never never met you before then and I was like I was like, That guy's a pro because there's some mayhem happening in the back of the room. And he's you know, he's giving his talk about the history and like how the how the the three arrows flag came into being and and you know it's and it's incredibly lucid calm and i definitely was thinking i would not be able to pull this off well uh, i i was kind of assuming well, that this happened at every single one of your book talks because <laughs> <laughs> and that that was why you were being you know, so you, chill about it you were you were um lucky or unlucky depending on how you want to think of it because there were i've never done a, another talk that was at all like that wow um, i've had a few others where there were some you know, shady types showed up and 
some comrades may be like we're keeping an eye on them or there have been some obviously like hostile kinds of questions and hostile types outside but as far as the sort of uh in the room thing that was the only time that that happened um and i i I really like had done that talk so many times that i could sort of have my eyeballs sort of keeping an eye on the back while my mouth is sort of doing the thing so you know i'm glad that you found it to be uh coherent the one thing i'll add to the story and i'll add this less as a sort of recollection and and more as an advisory or reminder to our listeners out there is that if I recall correctly, a couple people who are at the talk and sort of involved in the, let's call them shenanigans, uh, were contacted by the FBI uh, after that talk. Really? And uh, if I recall correctly, everyone, you know, the FBI claimed that they were, you know, trying to, trying to reach, like, find things out about about the bad guys and and everyone refused to speak to the FBI uh, everyone consulted their attorneys refused to speak to the FBI and uh, trouble moved on at least for that day so that was a, a funny postscript to that event I hope you're not finding that kind of trouble everywhere you go Mark Bray but thank you for being with us this evening let's maybe pivot a little bit toward the present. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I also wanted to mention, I uh, just because, you know, we're we're here at No Police Radio, that, that, that the other memory that I have of that event is that cops kind of materialized at the end of it, which I thought was interesting because certainly none of the, you know, anti-fascist audience in the room were going to be the ones to have called them. So, you know, we got to wonder, like, who did call them and who they were, you know, and who they were really there for. So I, I also remember that as a, you know, a kind of, uh, as, as um further sort of um, shady evidence of the, you know, the role of law enforcement in, um, in these, you know, in these kinds of repressive situations. Um, so, yeah, so Mark, I have been rereading um, Antifa, the anti-fascist handbook, kind of in preparation for this visit or this talk. And I was realizing, you know, I was remembering that um, there's a lot in it that's actually very, very useful, I think, for folks who are looking at this visit from Turning Point USA that is coming up on our own campus, um, partly because yeah. you have some great sections on uh, free speech debate, right? And, you know, and on what yeah. kinds of things, uh, you know, what, what are some things that you could say to people who say, but I don't understand, like, you know, wh- why can't everyone just kind of say their thing? Uh, you know, and I think, so I think that a lot of the points that you make about that are important and you know and obviously there's a free speech element uh you know to be raised in in what happened to you in 2017 in your book talk right i mean who's you know who's trying to prevent your ability to actually say what you want to say in that uh in that talk um but so you know with all of that in mind i was we're i think we're really really interested to know your thoughts especially now you know several years out from uh the writing of this handbook which i think you know also happened in the in the midst of some of these other kinds of um examples of campus organizing against, you know, against fascist speech. Um, and so we're really curious to hear just, you know, how how you're thinking now about um, phenomena like Turning Point USA coming to a campus like UC Davis and, you know, what your thoughts are about that, what you sure. want to say to our community. Sure. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> um, just to start with, with the point of comparison, right, um, as someone who has supported no platforming fascist and far right folks, um, the obvious response is, well, how would you like it if someone did that to you, right? Uh, and my answer would be, I would not like it. <laughs> um, no one likes it. They don't like it. We don't like it. But to reduce a, a tactic or a strategy 
to an action without asking who's doing it, why they're doing it, and, and what they're trying to accomplish is, is to depoliticize the whole conversation. Um, Anti-fascists oppose fascist and white supremacist and far-right thought and, and organizing, and that's why they shut them down. And they do so, I would argue, actually in the interest of meaningful free speech, and I use the word meaningful in that context to uh, essentially give content Right. So if you if you live in a community or let's take a campus for the for the point of discussion where uh, a segment of the campus population is trying to dehumanize and intimidate um, immigrants or transgender students or students of color or Jewish students or what have you, um, that significantly impedes their ability to meaningfully engage in free speech and is counter to any kind of semblance of equity at the heart of um the concept of free speech to begin with. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you know, that, that there's so much more to be said on the topic that we won't have, won't have time for everything. But to me, you know, that's the question is, who is speaking, what are they saying, and what are they trying to promote? And when you have um, Turning Point USA coming around, given their track record of racism in response to Black Lives Matter, um, you know, xenophobia, um, basically, you know, there, there's a, the the quote-unquote respectable face of this reactionary backlash that we're seeing with all of the, um, you know, the new laws against uh, drag performances and against the transgender community and, um, you know, getting rid of um, any semblance of real education in Florida. So um, we're all threatened, of course, not all equally given our positionality, but we're all threatened by what, what these kinds of groups are doing. And to try to stand behind um, abstract liberal freedoms in this political struggle, I think, is to be missing the whole point. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, it occurs to me that um, I think this would be a great opportunity to ask you another question that w- that might be really helpful to some of our listeners who are um, maybe not so familiar with Turning Point USA itself, you know, um, as we are, which is, you know, just to, to come back to the point that you made earlier about Turning Point USA being a kind of um, polished or uh, moderate seeming face, you know, of of some of these kinds of right wing points, because I think some people might really have a hard time sort of connecting the dots between an organization, you know, a sort of campus based organization like Turning Point USA and, you know, the term fascist that we were bringing up before at the top of the show, you know, uh, for, for, for some people might really means something kind of substantially different. And so I think it's important for us to maybe just sort of draw that line a little bit and understand like why it's appropriate to invoke the term fascism when talking about an org like uh, like Turning Point USA. Because I mean, I notice, you know, if you go on their website, like their articles are very careful. They don't say things outright in the way that I think some people might, you know, expect kind of fascist discourse to look, you know? So I wondered if, if there were, if there was a way that you could kind of help our, our listeners with that a little bit. Sure. Well, the, the, the short version is that after World War II, there was a trend in the global far right to take a step away from the explicit language of fascism or Nazism and, and a step away from the explicit language of white supremacy. And instead of talking of white supremacy, they started talking about white nationalism and the interests of white people in a context where um, allegedly, according to them, there was this conspiracy to get rid of white people. Um, And so 
you see that a lot with far-right discourse today is, is, okay, we have struggles for the rights of black people, for example. Why not struggles for the rights of white people who are getting left behind in this discourse of, of white genocide and so forth? And so although if you go on Turning Point's website, you know, they don't have the explicit language of white people are under threat um, at, at, the, at the top of their, their masthead, you can see that with Turning Point USA and increasingly just with the regular old Republican Party, mm -hmm. um, this notion that, again, you can see with the laws in Florida, that white people are under siege by um, what they perceive as sort of like these, these oceans of non-white people and that the interests of white people are being overlooked. Donald Trump harnessed this and Turning Point USA are trying to give it kind of a, a pseudo-intellectual student kind of young people vibe, right. and their language is, is, for example, around limited government, but, of course, limited government for right-wingers only means no social programs. It doesn't mean limited, for example, in calls to defund the police, right? That's an right. obvious example right. to, to limit the government, but when, when um, the Black Lives Matter protests occurred in response to the um, police murder of George Floyd, Charlie Kirk, Kirk called George Floyd. Yeah, I forgot the word he used, but he was he was denigrating and started calling him a terrible person. Mm -hmm. And what's the connection between denigrating George Floyd and like limited government and free markets? Well, he's saying the quiet part out loud because ultimately, um, far right politics, whether it's Turning Point or whether it's a more explicit fascist group, is acting in this context in the interest of white supremacy um, and authoritarianism even if the language uh, positions itself as about freedoms, those freedoms are invoked in order to basically d deprive other groups of their ability to gain a meaningful uh, existence in this country. Thanks, that's really helpful. And Virgil looks like he has something he wants to say. Oh no, I just, I mean, I, pr I appreciate that. that I, think, I think that's right. I mean, for me, you know, I do find myself getting in, in sort of interminable, ill-advised debates on Twitter about what fascism is really and whether we're really in fascism. And I definitely understand the impulse to want to move away from that language or that debate because you can get stuck in it and end up just forever in a fairly, you know, an academic or semantic deadlock. And for me, I guess, and I think Mark laid this out really usefully, in the current moment there's a cluster of issues around reimposing historical hierarchies race like white nationalism white supremacy is i think in some ways the most uh, visible and persistent of those but obviously not the only one the astonishing um sort of vehemence of the trans eliminationist movement uh, is really central to this Overall, for me, right, the, 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 the demarcating line in some sense is simply like whether people sign on to a version of great replacement theory or not, right? Whether there is a belief that, as, as, Mar as Mark brought forth, right, that the white race is under uh, real material or demographic threat of losing its power and needs to act violently to preserve it. Right. And that that's like whether we call that fascism or not, that seems to me like a useful dividing line. And Charlie Kirk has actually been utterly explicit about this. Bro has a podcast, which if you want to conceal your ideas, having a podcast is not always the best idea. And he just openly said whites are under demographic siege. We need to send civilian volunteer forces to the border uh, with handcuffs 
to start making arrests and stopping the, you know, the hordes from overflowing the United States. That's, it's textbook, right? So for me, there's just not much of a question. Like there's not, people, if people feel like they can sort of argue the term fascism so that they can forgive people like Charlie Kirk um, as sort of neutralish centrist conservatives, it's not gonna get very far as long as Charlie's on Team Great Replacement. Yeah, I think that's right. I also yeah. think that, you know, just, um, I think locating where the violence is is very important, you know, in these in these conversations. And I'm, I, I'm sure this is something that you have a lot to say about as well, Mark. I mean, I think that, you know, the sort of interesting phenomenon that happens is that because these, uh, these kinds of organizations, because they do often look polished, you know, it's very easy for them to kind of throw the accusations at vi of violence to anti-fascist protesters, right, and anti-fascist activists, you know. Um, but I think, you know, this raises some really important points about the difference between acting defensively and acting offensively, right, which is something that I think you talk about as well. And, I, and I, that might be another way to just, you know, sort of think about, like, how to how to understand and how to actually identify, you know, the, the violence that... Um, is at work in these, you know, um, in in these in these neo-fascist organizations. So, I, do you want to? Did you want to say a word about offensive, defensive yeah, violence, Mark? Is that well, just to, just to go back um, to the earlier comments about sort of fascism, how we define it, and, and dividing lines. It, it's definitely true that the conversation can get interminable and repetitive and muddled. Um, but but the interesting thing is if if you trace back great replacement theory and you trace back a lot of these popular buzzwords and talking points at the far right using you you, you find fascists at, at the origins of of many of them, and so in that sense I like to think of it often in terms of not you know does fascism in the 21st century doesn't necessarily line up exactly with what Mussolini was saying in 1919 right it's gone in a lot of different directions sometimes I talk about spectrums of the fascistic ways in which some groups will have aspects of it. But Turning Point USA is not textbook fascist. It's influenced by a variety of different fascist politics, white supremacist politics, and tries to adjust it to give it a, an appeal that can win over people who are turned off by those ideas. And that's part of the danger and part of the threat, um, whether or not you want to put it in one camp or another. And, and then, you know, offensive and defensive in terms of anti-fascism, you know, I would argue that, it, that all anti-fascism is defensive whether or not um, it's preemptive or not. Exactly. Uh, and so in, in that sense, you know, um, an organizing campaign to, to try to um, actively shut down Charlie Kirk, for example, in one way or another, would, would be self-defense because what he's promoting is hateful for so many demographics within the UC Davis community and beyond. You're listening to Mark Bray on No Police Radio here on KDVS. We're going to take a brief music break. We're going to return to have a final conversation with Mark about the relationship between anti-fascist politics and abolitionist politics. A big question, but if you want to try and make a little progress with us, we're going to think through it after this break.
KDVS, we're searching for a few public affairs hosts. Imagine being on the air talking with underrepresented peoples, or educating the public on pressing issues. In case you were wondering, anyone is eligible. Just contact us at publicaffairs at kdvs.org. difficulty seeing words on a page, that's no reason to stop reading. Talking Books is a free program of the Library of Congress. When you join, a special cassette player and the talking books you request will be sent to you free. As long as you finish a book, simply mail it back. The program and the postage are free. Call toll-free 888-657-READ. That's 1-888-657-7323. A public service message from the National Library Service for the Blind and Physically Handicapped. Welcome back to No Police Radio. You are listening to Odette and Virgil speaking to you on KDVS 90.3 in Davis. We are really happy to be talking to you this evening. We have a wonderful guest, the author Mark Bray. We're kind of mid-conversation with Mark. And so Virgil is going to pick that up and ask Mark a final question. I am going to pick it up before I do. A couple production notes, literally. No Police Radio is usually produced by our in-house expert, Local Bag. Local couldn't be with us today. Instead, we have superstar producer extraordinaire Juniper manning the boards, choosing some oddly chill music. Totally. I'm not quite sure how that happened, but I guess I can go along with it. I'll accept it. So be it. Let's move on. Okay. Hi, Mark. Um, I want to ask you, we've had a chance to talk about some concrete history, some concrete uh, um, ways to think about these problems. Now, 
I, I hope it won't be impolite to sort of move to the level of abstraction. We never want to end up there, but if it's okay, if I sort of try out an abstract sure. question. Go for it. You know, a lot of us in our lives um, who think of ourselves as, I'm not even necessarily going to say on the left, but as, as militants, radicals, people who are interested in human flourishing and liberation, we have multiple investments, right? Someone might be an abolitionist one day, an anti-fascist another day, a communist another day, and so on and so forth, right? And often we ask ourselves, how do we reconcile these things? And th this is part of what it means to be human, is to think about how these things coexist and how they relate. Given that this uh, radio show in particular uh, arises from an abolitionist project, people can probably tell by the name No Police Radio. Um, and, you know, an abolitionist project is historically related to the anti-fascist project. They've certainly sort of ascended in significance and engagement in a, a sort of in parallel over the last several years for better and worse reasons, but they're not quite identical. And I wonder if you'd be willing to talk us through yourself, your own sense, since I can only imagine that you're pretty engaged with both communities in their overlap. If you could talk us through your sense of the relationship between what it means to be a practicing and thinking anti-fascist and what it means to be committed to an abolitionist politics. Of course, starting with police abolition, sure. carceral abolition, but abolition perhaps as a, as a broader horizon. All right, that was a big wind-up. I apologize. Sure. Take it away. No, no, yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, just for, for point of clarification for the listeners, that anti-fascism is a broad tradition that encapsulates a variety of different liberal anti-fascists, radical anti-fascists. There's differences between kind of the militant anti-fascism that has, uh, you know, come to be known as Antifa, and um, other versions put forward by different kinds of European communist and socialist political parties that advocate for using a state to make it illegal to be a Nazi, to use the police and the courts to track down uh, the fascists that do illegal things and, and put them in prison. Um, so the book that I wrote about Antifa, and when we hear about that in the media, that refers to the militant anti-fascist tradition that rejects turning to the police or the courts, or the state to stop the far right, um, for a variety of reasons, some more kind of uh, strategic to the, the context, but others more political and philosophical. And, and I think part of the story, particularly in the U.S., is the influence of various different tendencies of anti-state radicals, largely anarchists, but other kinds of anti-state communists and, and, and similar kinds of folks as well. And so that is an interesting way where it, it dovetails and overlaps with different traditions calling for the abolition of the police and, and prisons and, and in some iterations the state itself, which have existed, I guess, give or take, since, since, there ha since the, the origins of the modern state, at least certainly since the middle of the 19th century. Today, um, you know, certainly calls for abolition have come largely out of um, – groups that identify with the black radical tradition. And there is, of course, in the U U.S. and elsewhere, a robust black anti-fascist tradition as well, thinking just off the top of my head about the Black Panthers and their uh, calls for a united front against fascism and their uh, compelling comparisons of police violence in the U.S. to the, at that 
point, particularly recent legacy of, of uh, fascist and Nazi violence and so forth. And, you know, I think that once you start kind of talking about the connections, a couple of things come to mind. I mean, first of all, is if we think through, you know, what, what Ami Cesare and, and some other um, theorists have said about thinking of Nazism as a kind of European imperialism and genocide brought home to the European continent, Sorry about that. My mother was calling me on the line. <laughs> um, then, then we can we can think about um, anti-fascism as a kind of anti-imperialism. We can think of fascism as a kind of imperialism. Then the, the conversations between um, uh, you know what it means to resist the, the conversation about resisting fascism becomes broader. And, and the other aspect of it is is if we actually can make progress towards getting rid of police and prisons inevitably there is going to be a reactionary backlash and that may take a an explicitly fascist form it may not but thinking about how we can hold those forces at bay and prevent them from gaining more momentum and power in society is in some ways you could think of it as the flip side of the coin of of trying to make progress that any kind of progress elicits a backlash and so there, there's, a, there's a kind of push and pull and you, you're right to point out that um, every anti-fascist I interviewed for my book also puts time into other kinds of organizing, um, whether it be in communities or unions or environmental work or what have you. And so in that sense, uh, historically, um, anti-fascism wouldn't exist without fascism, wouldn't exist without far-right politics. It, it's a response to it, and um, it'd be great if, if we could get to the point where we could just work towards building a new world, but... Um, as long as the kinds of seeds that that grow fascism in capitalism and patriarchy and, and white supremacy and ableism and so forth exist, we're going to continue to have to kind of push and pull on both fronts. Thanks. Yeah, you know, it's helpful. I, I know you uh, you make this really interesting point in your book also about how about, you know, um, related to what you were just saying about the extent to which anti-fascist movements really are reactive and, you know, when fascist activity kind of subsides in a community, anti-fascist, you know, activity subsides also. And I think that's a helpful way to kind of think about these movements that we're talking about, you know, to understand the sort of implicitly defensive nature, you know, um, of anti-fascism, which is actually different from movements like like abolition, you know, which are um, which are not necessarily kind of entirely or even at all like defensive in their, you know, um, in their motivation or their or their mode, you know, they're actually kind of um, actively imagining something different. So that's you know I think that's really helpful. I think, over for, I think for me, yeah. the challenge is that anti-fascism as a necessary practice hails you, right? When it's time to deplatform the fascist, you show up, right? And that's good. The problem is, uh, as things intensify, as we we live in a moment of sort of increased volatility and greater ethno-nationalist, white nationalist, white supremacist movements, and so on. The hailing never stops, and it gets in the way of um, the positive projects that one might imagine. And this, for me, is the great puzzle, right? And it's th this is not, I don't mean to sort of offer the Amadeo Bordiga critique of anti-fascism as, as uh, to simplify it, like what detracts from, um, you know, a, a, a movement to transform social relations in general toward liberation, right? Um, uh, at the same time, like, I do recognize the experience of trying to negotiate in my life 
how to do the anti-fascist work I feel called to do when I'm called to do it, and to figure out how to be engaged in positive projects that build things. And that's a real difficult one. I wonder, I wonder Mark, if you could talk a little bit about how you've worked through that in your own life, or if you found the magic solution that you could pass on to everyone, maybe sell it, get real rich, uh, but just in general, what your thoughts are on that puzzle? Yeah, I, I don't have a solution to it. Um, and I, I think that, 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 I mean, of course, right, even if the anti-fascist movement is successful and really uh, obliterates any public semblance of far-right organizing, you're there just sort of at that point, you're, okay, now we need to, to build things. Now we need to create things. Now we need to demolish some other kinds of things. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. that, that it, 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 it's not... So back in the 1990s, there was this debate in the German anti-fascist movement about should we think of the entirety of radical politics through the lens of anti-fascism on the one hand, or should we think of anti-fascism as, as some people have called it, a, a firefighting operation, to put out the fire, deal with this emergency, and then once the fire is out, we go back to building and doing other things. And, and I, I lean towards the latter. It, it, I think it should be thought of as a firefighting operation, and of course we don't want the building to burn down uh, we don't want the fire to spread, but we, we do need to build the world that won't, you know, um, be be so uh, oppressive as, as the one that we have now. Yeah. It, I mean, it's not the same at all, but it sort of reminds me of some conversations I was involved with Occupy Wall Street uh, back in New York, where we'd have demonstrations, people would get beat up, we'd talk about police violence, and some people would say, well, we're losing our message because our message is talking about the police. And you know, I thought that, that that is, if you're talking about economic injustice, talking about the police is the same conversation. But mm-hmm. there is something to the notion that sometimes it can become this kind of spiral of dealing with repression, dealing with reaction, and you get caught up in that in, in some ways where, um, you know, you really would rather be building something else. And, and unfortunately, I don't have a solution for that. But I think it is, it is a consideration. I think, yeah, well, I think, I think naming, naming it as a, you know, as a kind of problem and structure is useful, you know, I think for a lot of people to, to hear. Um, and I think we are, uh, just before we let you go, we are really interested to hear, do you have any new projects you're working on that you want to tell us about? Just what's on your mind right now? Um, it's been so helpful to have you help us think through, like, how we want to approach um, these things that are happening on our campus. And so we want to, we were also really interested to know what uh, what you have going on. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate this conversation. Um, to be honest, I don't have a whole lot going on right now. Um, I'm, I'm teaching, I'm living my life. We'll see what next <laughs> becomes a, a point of interest. But uh, the recent book is uh, Anarchist Inquisition came out last year and I've been working on it for a decade. So if folks are interested, that's what they can check out. That's great. Congratulations on the new book. Thank you. Congratulations on the book. Thank you so much for visiting with us. We at No Police Radio and at KDVS at UC Davis, all of us are grateful for your time. We wish you well, and please give your mom our best. Well, too. Have a good night. <laughs> Take care, Mark. All right. Thank you so much to Mark Gray for that fantastic
are back. You are listening to No Police Radio on KGBS. I am Odette. And uh, every show, we have a little segment at the end where we talk about some bad cop stuff and, uh, and a good project, a thing that people are doing that we are excited about. So I am going to pass it to Virgil. Now, we never have a shortage of bad cop stuff. So here is this week's from Virgil. I can't believe I have to be bad cop. <laughs> uh, I don't, because the Atlanta Police Department is carrying the burden for everyone. I don't mean to make light of things, actually. It's uh, almost impossible to confront the horror of what's going on down there, and that's only one place in the landscape of police brutality, police repression, and carceral violence. We've been following Atlanta pretty carefully. We had a guest, as uh, long-time listeners will recall, and by long time I mean the last couple episodes, we had a guest from Defend the Atlanta Forest, Stop Cop City, talking about the police murder of their comrade, Tortuguita, who was killed by the police uh, defending the Atlanta Forest, where there's an attempt to build so-called Cop City, a massive development for even more police to have even more money to practice even more skills at messing up the lives and destroying the existence of even more people. Um, the police repression has been intense in addition to that killing and has only intensified. The Stop Cop City protesters began what is planned to be a week-long celebratory protest with a, a music event there last night. The, the attendees were kettled. Many, many were arrested, including legal observers uh, and others. They were charged not simply with trespassing, which as you may know is the usual charge when the police bring in the LRAD and the megaphone and tell you to disperse and start cranking the LRAD at you. And uh, if you don't leave, you can get charged with trespassing. But in this case, everyone has been charged with domestic terrorism, which has been a, a charge they've been using regularly down there, which carries, as you can imagine, extremely stiff uh, penalties, long time inside. Are, this is for people who went to a dance party to defend a forest. In addition to these charges, many of the activists and organizers who've been arrested there, we now are given to understand they're going to be indicted on RICO charges. If you don't know about RICO charges, that refers to the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act for racketeering. It was invented as a category of charge in the 70s mostly to stop the so-called mafia and organized crime. It's sort of a new way to deal with conspiratorial organizations. And it not only does it have increased penalties, but it provides the basis to arrest pretty much anyone you understand to be involved in the organization, whether or not they've done anything, even something as heinous as going to a dance party in the forest. Um, even, if, even if they never went to the forest, never went to the dance party, did not shake their tail feather for a second, never left their house, if they're understood to be part of this criminal organization, which is the Stop Cop City movement, they can be indicted on RICO charges with quite severe penalties. So this is ratcheting up the degree of repression against forest defenders, against anti-police activists, against humans trying to protect the possibility of various kinds of flourishing and liberation and freedom in Atlanta and elsewhere. Here's the thing. 
the repression has intensified. It was already very, very intense last week and the week before that. And yet, the new round of protests that began last night was bigger than ever. It's going to keep on getting bigger. Stop Cop City is going to win. Despite the bad cops. Stop Cop City will win. And with that, I want to toss it back to Odette. Thank some, for some good projects. Thank you, Virgil. And I think that is totally right. Stop Cop City is going to win. This is a really, I think that, you know, Stop Cop City is probably one of the most important, uh, you know, sort of extended phenomena related to policing, police repression, related to um, environmental advocacy that, you know, that's been going on in this country for a while. And I did want to mention that um, if you missed the episode that Virgil was mentioning that aired a few weeks ago, you can actually uh, listen to recordings of um, many of our episodes on the UC Davis Cops Off Campus website. So if you'd like to hear that conversation about the Stop Cop City movement um, with an Atlanta Forest Defender, it was really amazing conversation. You can visit that website and, uh, and check out that conversation. I think it's a great way to um, learn from the inside, you know, about what this movement was about and where it's going. And as Virgil says, why it's going to win. Um, so I wanna come back to, you know, I, I, we've, been, we've been talking about, um, anti-fascism. We've been talking about Turning Point USA for this whole show. Uh, and so I want to kind of end, you know, by um, invoking that same theme to say that we don't have a kind of super specific, like, good act this week. But what we really want to do as we close out the show is shout out all the people out there who have been doing whatever they can to stand up to Turning Point USA and other neo-fascist organizations that are trying to take up airtime and space on campuses. Um, you may or may not know that they, Turning Point USA has a presence at UC Santa Barbara also, and a whole bunch of comrades came out to try to shut that event down and at least show that they were just really not okay with Turning Point USA being there. Um, we also just want to shout out anybody and everybody who may be out there right now thinking about wanting to um, show up for Turning Point USA's thing at Davis to uh, find whatever way they can to say that it is not okay for these neo-fascist orgs to, um, to be here. You know, I think the point that Mark Bray makes is that, you know, deplatforming is not censorship and silencing. It is actually making the community safe for everybody because these are dangerous organizations with um, violent and dangerous missions. Virgil, would you agree? Would you yeah, revise I think, that? I, I think there's no way there's no way around it. Like the idea that you can uh, arrive at something like freedom and freedom is a value that has been uh, um, abjected and humiliated by its various usages and it remains something I believe in. The idea that you can arrive at freedom by allowing those whose entire project is to destroy freedom to run free seems to me to be misbegotten. So if one's project is freedom, I don't think there's a route that gets there, which is debate me, bro. Uh, and I think that there's n you're defending freedom by refusing space in the world to those utterly committed to unfreedom. So everyone who is finding their ways to stand up to unfreedom, we want to shout them out this week. Heck yeah. Uh, we have coming up some more episodes. We have March 20th. That's two weeks from today. 
I think you're going to enjoy that show. We're not going to give away our future plans, but we do have various people coming in. We're going to have a conversation in April with uh, an expert in so-called copaganda, the ways that the media and other sources prop up the endless expansion and support of police. We're going to talk about them. We're going to talk with them about, among other things, a plan proposed by two supposedly socialist Harvard professors to improve public safety, and not just public safety, but public health and public freedom by adding five million police. More on that coming up in the future. Thank you for joining us on No Police Radio. I'm uh, Virgil, and we've been with me and... And I'm Odile, and it's always great to be with... Oh, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm Odette today, actually. Um, it is great to be with all of you. And I'm having trouble with my name today for some reason. It's just one of those days. It is great to be with all of you. And, uh, yeah, we wish you a good couple of weeks, and we will see you again soon. And thanks again to Juniper for stepping in to make the show happen. We're going to kick it back to Juniper for music that will take us out of the show and on to the next episode. so much everyone for listening you've been listening to kdvs 90.3 davis that last song you just heard was an offering to the night by jesus peace and then let's see earlier i believe 
we were listening to Zulu, uh, and we can't remember the name of the song. I'll have to bring it back around later. But um, Zulu and Show Me the Body and Jesus Pierce all played last night, so I'm still obsessed with them. So you're going to be hearing a little bit more hardcore music. Uh, and then early on on the show, you were listening to Ethiopique's Volume 21 by Emma Hoy. Uh, I highly suggest anyone tune in to uh, try and listen through any volumes you'd like of Ethiopiques. There's 30 of them, so it might <laughs> might take you a second. Um, personally, I like Volume 4. That's really good. Volume 14 is also fantastic. Um, but yeah, it's all just a bunch of... Um, older jazz from the 60s and 70s in Ethiopia. Uh, and so, yeah, thank you so much for listening. We're going to get right back into some music and some PSAs, and I'll catch you in a bit.
It may surprise some people to learn that their dog's health could provide insight into their own risk of infection. The American Lyme Disease Foundation says Lyme disease in dogs is an indicator of an increased risk of infection in their owners. Symptoms in dogs include swollen joints and lymph nodes, fever, and fatigue. If you notice these symptoms in your canine companion, it's a good idea to get your dog and yourself screened for Lyme disease. Hmm. Say, now that's smart, and not a moment too soon. Smiles are powerful. They spread joy, laughter, and hope. But not everyone gets a fair chance at a smile. Every three minutes, a baby is born with a cleft, making it difficult to talk, hear, eat, and even breathe. In America, most children with clefts receive immediate care, but others around the world may never have access to the surgery they need to thrive. Smile Train is changing that. As the world's largest cleft charity, our sustainable model has sponsored more than 1.5 million smiles. We offer training and financial support to local medical professionals so they can provide life-changing surgery and other essential services at no cost to families. It's more than to see these children, to hear the difference that we make. And for me being born with a cleft lip and palate, knowing what they went through is so life-changing for me. Help us change the world one smile at a time. To learn more, visit smiletrain.org learn.
are back. Thank you so much for listening. That last song you heard was called Our Day Is Now by Zulu. And the song you heard before that was also by Zulu called For Sister Humphrey. And this is off their new album uh, called A New Tomorrow. I would highly recommend listening to it. Um, They are one of my new favorite bands, to be honest. Uh, They're pretty good. I believe before that you heard Opening Night by Scowl. I love a good hardcore punk band with a femme vocal lead. Amazing. Uh, And then before that, uh, you heard Forks and Knives by Show Me the Body. And that'll do it for No Police Radio. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch us uh, not next Monday, but the Monday after that. And I hope everyone has a good night.